Hello, everybody. <laughs> this is Connor. And I'm Elle. And uh, we're the Interloper Podcast, and we're joined today by Deja Milani. Hello, hello. Hi. Uh, we're so grateful to have you here. I'm grateful to be here. <laughs> and you are you are um, talking with us from Detroit, right? Or do you live in Detroit, or yes. do you live closer to Bloomfield Hills? Detroit. Okay. Well, actually, I want to start off by asking you a question that is totally not related to Uh-oh. anything we're talking about. <laughs> Uh, but so are you, where are you from originally? Um, so I was originally born in Rockdale, Georgia, but like Detroit has been my home base. Like majority of my mom's family is here. So I've lived in, I have um, lived in Virginia and I've lived in Arizona. Um, but I call Detroit like my home base, if that makes any sense. Well, I, so I was asking you because you are currently a student, a graduate student at Cranbrook Academy where I actually graduated. So I'm really intrigued by the difference between Bloomfield Hills, which is where the school is, and Detroit. And so I'd love to hear what you think about living in Detroit and then driving over to Cranbrook into Bloomfield Hills and kind of what the differences are and how your feelings are about it. Uh, that's definitely a huge question. I think that living in Detroit and um, Michigan in general is so interesting because we have so many like divisions. So like, you get this transition between, you know, I specifically live in like the Indian Village area, um, which is also closer to Gross Point. So um, this space is sort of like a safe space of the east side, like the safer part of the east side, particularly because of the income levels that, you know, are literally across the street. Not that my income level is that at all. But, well, I was um, going to say, just, just but, really fast to interrupt, you're using air quotes when you say safe space. And I'm curious about that because Gross Point, for those that people don't know it, is like an old money era, area of Detroit, kind of. So when correct, you're using quote, quotes, which people can't see, what do you mean when you say safe space? I mean that... Is specifically starting to become more gentrified and the prices of like my, I just re-signed my lease and renewed my lease and the increase is at least $200. So it's really becoming this, this space that is comfortable specifically like for young professionals Mm -hmm. per se. And it's a lot more, I, I, in my specific apartment, um, there are a, a very mixed, you know, race, but the income levels are definitely where, you know, you have to be some sort of, you know, young professional. And that is like salary based. If you're not salary based in some way, you're mm-hmm. probably not going to be able to get into the, the buildings that are in this area, which is like really frustrating. Mm-hmm. It, it's not like the Detroit that I grew up with, particularly. Mm-hmm. It, it has been like a culture shift for me in a way. But going back to like answering your question, uh, once again, you sort of see these like different stages. So you have mm-hmm. to go in my commute. I have to, it's about, you know, 35 minutes to 40 minutes on a good day and 45 minutes or so when it's like snowy and traffic and everything. But you go through Detroit. So you go through like this sort of gentrified area. Then I go through downtown Detroit. Then I go into the residential areas. And then, you know, because I'm taking the lodge usually. So I mm-hmm. go through the residential areas. And then that's sort of where I hit Highland Park. Then you hit, you know, Royal Oak. And then you hit Southfield. So it's sort of like this pyramid in a sense of mm-hmm. like communities. And then you, you know, get to this. I don't know, magical space, quote unquote, uh, mm-hmm. magical space like that is this, you know, sort of suburban high income 
area. And it does get really frustrating because it is like such a huge gap culturally. You know what I mean? Like there, there's definitely a bubble around yeah. that space and there's a huge disconnect, even with a lot of the students that are attending you know, whether it is the upper school or Cranbrook, mm-hmm. the the art academy also. Yeah. And it's a very, uh, the best word is like interesting um, mm-hmm. because you are, <laughs> I, I feel like I am, I am representing, you know, Detroit artists. And I think mm-hmm. that it is really imperative for me to use my voice and like the, the little bit of a platform that I have like sort of created for myself and that I do have being at Cranbrook to mm-hmm. bring recognition to like Detroit artists and right. the the beautiful like variety and like multifacetedness of Detroit artists, you know, because we have yeah. people here who didn't go to these prestige like private yeah. art schools, but are, you know, geniuses and, and yeah. often get cut out of these conversations. Well, I love the reason I asked, you know, I'm interested in your experience there. You know, I I kind of I'm really familiar with the area that you're talking about, because I lived in those areas. But I know that your work for Interloper and the show that you did is about hair and relationship. And I want to get to that in a minute. But really, what you're talking about is the context and framework of the entire curated series, because we're talking Mm -hmm. about uh, land and ownership and borders and boundaries and the difference between gentrification versus quote, unquote, revitalization and And so in the context of these things, for those that are listening to this, Bloomfield Hills is where Cranbrook Academy is, is a graduate school and also an upper school, but there's the greatest wealth disparity. So in Bloomfield Hills is like, I think the second richest county in the entire United States. And it's the greatest wealth disparity in the entire nation between two counties. And that's Detroit to Bloomfield Hills. And so Mm -hmm. when Deja was talking about that drive in from where she lives through Detroit up to school, she's literally doing the greatest trek that you can do from uh, low income to high income than anywhere else Mm -hmm. in the U.S. It's definitely one of those things where like I've been Mm. pulled over in that area and it's like, okay, you know, late at night specifically. Um, This Mm -hmm. was like right after I feel like this was like right after my first year reviews or something. But it was one of those times where like you're spending all your night in the studio. You know what I mean? And because I commute, I was like, tired you know Mm -hmm. and so I got pulled over and it was one of those moments where it's just like okay you know we gotta like just take a few deep breaths like it was it was really intense Mm -hmm. um and so because you do feel it you you do feel like the eyes you're like the (laughs) you feeling like you have to make all the right moves in order to feel like you belong in that area. Right. And I, I, it's interesting what you're saying. So I loved going to Cranbrook. It was like I said earlier, the two best years of my life because it was so, so much creativity. I love to get to make my work. But one of the hardest things about it for me when I was there is I'm a single mom. And so I had to live close to the school because I wanted mm-hmm. to put my uh, daughter in a public school. And it was unbelievable the amount of wealth that she was surrounded by. In fact, it ended up being too hard for her and I had to pull her out because of the difference wow. in our economic and social status of her friends. Mm -hmm. But all that to say that that was, there are a lot of things about Cranbrook that were really shocking for me. And I talked a lot about it when I was there. And one was that I didn't quite realize that like, uh, like I was in the photography department at first when Danielle Dean was Mm -hmm. the, um, at first Liz, uh, Liz Cohen and then Danielle Dean. And then I switched to sculpture, but I didn't realize like in the photography department while I was there, or I believe it was the year before it was the first black woman to ever graduate from photography at Cranbrook. Mm-hmm. 
But I, I just was thinking about the pressure that you must feel to be representative of Detroit artists, first of all. And then second of all, it's a very old school white establishment uh, institution. Mm -hmm. And it's very replicative of the art world in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And so I'm just curious, like, especially because your hair, your work is so much about hair and about black culture and black femme. And so what is it like, not only to create your work, but to create it within the context of this very, like, old world art white institution? I'm very happy that you actually um, brought that question up because it, it does have a huge effect on on me and a few of the other, well, not a few, but all of the other people of color, but also specifically because I have such a close kind of connection with the other Black artists that are, mm-hmm. you know, attending um, the institution. And honestly, it's something that I am... I'm trying to work through this, you know, release of carrying my whole culture like on my back and on my shoulders, because while I do that to myself, it it also is society, you know, automatically does that specifically when you are like this token of a of a person in a room or in an institution. And honestly, it it has been a huge challenge for me. Like Mm -hmm. I haven't I haven't loved going to this institution, you know what I mean, Mm -hmm. every day. Um, It can be very isolating. It can be very, you know, you can feel really alienated a lot of the times. Also, I know specifically because I'm going through this time, you know, second year, second semester just began for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we're working through our theses and like, it can be very challenging because I feel like a lot of my critiques and conversations, while everyone is still, everyone is contributing. And they're contributing mm-hmm. the best that they can and to the best of their ability. But it's still very surface level because there isn't a lot of diversity in the cohort, let alone the diversity in the artists and residents. And right. that is one of the biggest challenges for me. You know, like mm. if I remember correctly, last year we were historic in having the most black students attending at one time. Um, and I think there was what, thir- 12, 13 of us, which was it's like, embarrassing. It's still yeah. like, all right, <laughs> yeah. you know, um, and so of course I can always pull my peers in and, and mm-hmm. of course they all are at different levels of their careers. Um, so we still are able to cultivate our own conversations and I, you know, have built a community here in Detroit. Um, so I can have those conversations there, but it also is really frustrating when you're going through reviews or, you know, wanting to pull in another air or someone that is at this like, other level within mm-hmm. the institution and you can't I, I don't have that I don't have access to even a person of color on the artist in residence you know cohort let alone like a black woman or a black man right. and so it can get frustrating <laughs> and that's and that's really my uh what my experience has been Right. And I, I think I appreciate you sharing this because it's something that I was really interested in talking about. And, and my friends, we were talking about, like, I don't know if you heard about a piece that two artists did where they wrote like token, token students or token. And then they made this huge banner and they hung it outside their windows. Uh, Lorena Cruz Santiago was one of them. 
And so it was like a couple years before you and they were asked to take it down immediately. And so like, this is a conversation that I think that, you know, and it's interesting because people are changing over every year. It's a two-year program. And so sometimes that conversation gets lost. But I think it's a, it's a really interesting context for your work, which we can kind of get into because one of the things I love about Cranbrook Academy and going there is that they create it to be a microcosm of the art world. And that's a conversation that we want to have and that we've been trying to have. And so specifically in Seattle, like the decision to show your work in Seattle, which is one of the whitest cities in, uh, mm-hmm. and one of the whitest <laughs> and wealthiest cities in the United States. And then we chose a neighborhood that we're in very for particular reasons. Some some of those things that we chose it for, it's in the Greenwood neighborhood. And I lived there a while back, but it's clo- like slowly getting um, displaced. So like a, a perfect example is uh, all the fast food restaurants have been moved out. Like the subway has been moved out because they can't afford the rent anymore. I mean, they want more mm-hmm. like quote unquote high class restaurants. And basically I'm like, who can afford to live in this area anymore? And that was a while ago. And it's also become more and more white over time. Even more interesting is I am a white woman and I'm also an artist and a curator. And so I have a hairstylist I've been seeing for like seven years. And so my hairstylist opened her own salon in Greenwood. And so we were kind of having this conversation, especially around hair. And she gave us an area to create an interloper gallery which we called the Seattle Mm -hmm. Salon. And that's where we invited you to come in and show your work. And so this is part Mm -hmm. of the conversation we wanted to have was not just about the work that you're doing, but also interloping, where does it belong? And where does that conversation happen? And really, I've really enjoyed the conversations and the differences of what does it mean to be a white woman to get my hair done and the culture with that in juxtaposition with what it means within black female hair culture. And so that's kind of like, just to give for the listeners a situation of where your work was to kind of nuance the conversation. But on top of that, I'm gonna give you all the levels I'd love to talk about it is I'm a white curator. And so Mm -hmm. even some people brought up, there's a lot of questions and a lot of the work that I've been doing in curation and other series and other places I bring in and co-curate with other females. But there's a lot of questions like, what does it mean for me as a white female curator to curate your work into a show as a black woman into a really white neighborhood inside a white hair salon? So that adds a lot of different levels. And the reason we wanted to do that is we really wanted to have this conversation about what can we learn from these really loaded cultural things. Mm-hmm. So I know that was a huge mouthful, but do you have anything you want <laughs> to say about that so far? In creating this work, because it is so like, because black hair in general is so intimate, hair in general is so intimate, but um, specifically my relationship and a lot of um, people within the black community's relationship with hair is so intimate. And like the idea of like someone touching your scalp and like caring for you and taking the time to groom, you know, groom you and um, do this like meditative practice that is, is meditative for you, but also meditative for the stylist. I have always seen it, my work like dedicated um, to those people. And so when you came to me, I, I did think about it for a minute. Cause I was like, Hey, like this is a this is like a big decision seeing as how like you make works specifically dedicated to a specific audience but i think that as i'm sort of getting through you know moving through my my master's sort of experience i'm trying to figure out and find different ways in the places that my work does belong and so i thought it was really interesting to have this opportunity to display this work 
in this space where someone like me might not be always walking down the street. Like it might be very rare. And I felt like it was a way for me to, in a way, take up space and understand that like it was, you know, that's fine. You know, and I had to be comfortable with taking up space in this, you know, really, like you said, white area and also make our hair and our hairstyling and the practice of our hairstyling relevant. And the cool part about the space is it's named Calico. And I think that the owner of the hair salon, she really wants to bridge that gap. And so she actually Mm -hmm. has been doing these initiatives and I believe having in a hairstylist that does black hair, that's a black woman that does black hair. And so she's trying to bridge that gap. Mm -hmm. And I'm really interested because I'm like, that's a cultural feat as well, because there's so much difference in how the the area is. So it's a really interesting thing that she's trying to do. And I really respect what she's doing. But also just to give you... um, to really thank you, because I, I was very aware of like the ask to ask you to take up space and that we didn't want to tokenize you, that we really were like, I love the work you're doing. I love how you're talking about community. I think there's so much that we can learn from you. And so to have this dedicated space that was like lit up that you you can't walk down the street or drive down the street without seeing it. It was like mm-hmm. at night, everything is dark. And then there's your work that you see. Like yeah. everyone saw yeah. it. It was amazing. And then we were able to host a conversation inside the salon where we had all different types of stories around hair, different cultures, even from like people, um, you know, a woman that wears a head covering and talking about that Mm -hmm. to like black hair and white hair and women and men. And it was just this amazing experience for me to sit inside a hair salon that typically you only see white women And there's Mm -hmm. this incredibly nuanced and fruitful conversation going on about the relationship of community and body to hair. And it's all Mm -hmm. because your work is inspiring this conversation. Yay! So I just want to say thank you. (laughs) The risk that you took to take up space, you actually kind of pried open more space for other people to come into that space and have conversations that were really important. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we take it like take, the practice or the just the idea of hair in general for granted like we um is something that like we have to take care of so you mm-hmm. know you figure out how to do it either you know you figure out how to just make it work for you until you can access a salon or, or a professional or you create this this relationship with your hair like this really deep and intimate relationship with your hair but Either way, we still don't take in like the beauty and the power that it actually Mm. has. I'm really happy to hear, you know, that hair was able to, um, you know, cultivate those conversations. Yeah. Well, tell, take a second and tell us, um, I'd love to hear about your relationship with your hair. Um, That was one of the first questions that we asked um, everyone. Like Tola Adewalagan was the one that hosted the conversation. And the first thing he did Mm -hmm. was go around and say, hey, everyone go around and say what your relationship with hair was. Um, And it was fascinating. So I'd love if you don't mind answering that question, which is kind of in your statement a little bit and what your work is about. But what is your relationship with hair? So like I am a shop baby. So my mother was a hairstylist. So I've been around hair, you know, all my life. My mother um, was specifically um, a hairstylist dedicated to like natural hair and, um, you know, braiding. And so I have always been like surrounded by different, you know, hair textures, like the the really curly to the really tight and the kinky. So I, you know, from a very young age have always like valued it. And I from like 
little, like since I can remember, you know, I was trying to figure out ways to style my, you know, Barbie dolls hair and blah, blah, blah. But then at, at a specific age, you know, I got to the point where my mother was allowing me to finish the ends of braids, you know, um, and then like the stages sort of built up where, you know, she was styling my hair and I was learning how to, you know, groom myself and take care of my own hair with braids and extensions and stuff like that. And like, there's specifically times where uh, we had hair roars here in Detroit, which is like a big historical thing. And so my mother, you know, participated in that. Oh, so like, cool. I was able to, you know, participate that in that as at a young age and, you know, being surrounded by like, all of this, this black community, but like the exaggeration in this like camp um, aesthetic where, you know, there's helicopters on heads and like, you know, poker cards and like, you know, things yeah. moving around and stuff like that. Um, so that was always really great. And that celebration was always like sort of throughout our house. Like my mother was always doing hair in the kitchen, you know, on the side. And I, I don't really remember a time where like hair wasn't you know, a part of my life. But then I also kind of remember, you know, these really intimate moments with like my great grandmother, you know, my father on my father's side where, you know, my grandma was teaching me how to grease her scalp, you know, once she um, wasn't able to sort of lift her arms above her head and we were able to braid it, you know, and that connection between generations was, you know, really beautiful. It's like really deep connections, but then there's also these like sort of, you know, aesthetic dedicated connections mm -hmm. with it and I just I don't know really what I would do without it mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, without being able to you know do it for other people and service other people but also you know care for myself like I don't really remember a time where I disliked my hair uh, mm -hmm. which isn't always you know common when you're talking to like a black femme person mm -hmm. like because it was so you know, disregarded and, you know, anti-Blackness is just mm -hmm. so deep within our culture. I am just really grateful that I've had the opportunity to, you know, have a mother that like instilled so much love and like self-confidence into me to where I always like love the things that my hair could do. There's just something so incredible about your work. There's just such a substance that I'm going to admit this, that when I read your, um, I was looking at your work and I read your, um, statement, you had a statement up that was different, but we were talking about the braid and the three entwined. And I immediately mm -hmm. started tearing up and was so moved by it because I thought about growing up and not having a close relationship with my mom where she did my hair. And I have like all these stories and I've actually done a lot of work around artwork around my hair and being around my friends who were black girls and their hair, their moms were doing their hair and being so jealous of that community and that relationship. And and just thinking about how this idea of freedom, how we're so dependent on each other's relationship. And you really mm -hmm. nail it when you talk about the braid. And it's such, it was such a beautiful, like full moment that I saw your work and I was like, this is what it means to be a woman. This is what it means to be community. And that really came through in the work that you did for the show for Interloper. Thank you. I appreciate that. It took me so long to just make work that came from me and that like wasn't a response to the things that mm -hmm. were happening around me you know I've always made work that like made me happy in a sense but it wasn't always the things that I shared 
Um, and so I think that that's what this work does, um, specifically the, the work where, you know, working with hair, because I have such a deep connection with it that I'm like able to show my full self. And like, I think that me having, you know, creating that like agency for myself really does create these connections that like I never would have thought that I would be able to mm. have with, you know, other people. It's really amazing. Like the power <laughs> of yeah. work and, and the power of like recognizing who you are and, you know, displaying that fully to the world and just saying what you get from it is what you get from it. I know what I receive from it. I often get that, like, these really genuine responses, these really like vulnerable responses to my work. And so I'm very happy that I, you know, have the privilege, you know, to to do that and to share my work and my ideas. <laughs> so in your show, you had titled it Pathways and you had three different pieces, a sculptural piece, and then you had a piece using photography and then a piece that was more illustrative. Mm -hmm. And in your statement, you had talked about how you're kind of transitioning and how this, you know, kind of defining what pathways are. And so I'm curious about to hear a little more about that, like where you feel like artistically you came from, where you're head and where you're headed and kind of like what that means to you about being on this pathway in in this particular show. Yeah. So in this particular show, um, you all actually have three sort of different stages of my artistic practice. And one is sort of dedicated to the beginning of my artistic practice where I was beginning to recognize like the sheer beauty of cornrowing and the practice of it in Crossroads specifically. I love sort of the historical connection also because there are these stories stating that specifically Afro-Colombians used cornrows as a form of maps and map making, map making and as a form of cartography. And so that's sort of where I started to explore, you know, what creating a pathway for myself would be because I'm like, I was diagnosed with um, like bipolar disorder and ADHD and OCD, like So I've got like all of these little layers of things happening within my mind. And so I'm always like, okay, but how do I access freedom? How do I access peace? How do I access stillness for myself? And and like I've recognized that through my making process, I've recognized that I have to find those things for myself before I can help my community also have access to those things. That's sort of where this like pathway series began. Um, and so I really just allow myself to take the time and, you know, create these images using this thing that I have this really intimate connection with. And I sort of use it as a, the braids as, you know, line work or, uh, mark making to really express what I'm feeling at the time. When it comes to, you know, my my practice, I sort of went through this this time of just specifically an undergrad where I'm like, okay, you know, what what do I what am I going to be doing as an artist? Like, Mm -hmm. because specifically, you know, as a black artist, there's so much pressure on like 
making sure that you are representing the community or you are using your voice or you are using your platform and, mm. and, and everything. And that's, it's a lot of pressure. Um, and so I had to find a thing that made me happy first. And so I started working with the hair, but then specifically when it came to like my first year in grad school, I went into that in rage, but mm-hmm. I read Brittany Cooper's Eloquent Rage, mm-hmm. um, which helped me really identify the spaces and the like the root to a lot of the things that I was enraged about, which sort of mm-hmm. helped me dissect a lot of my rage and frustration. And so that's sort of where I went into the Rage series. And so Pressure was a part of that Rage series. Um, And I used this deep burgundy red hair or interpretation of red hair in in that piece specifically to sort of display my rage. And it's so funny because like a lot of people are like, I don't know if I feel rage from these pieces. You know what I mean? And it's like, it's my interpretation of rage and, and the way that I have to hide it and the way that I have to mask it in a sense, because if I were to really display to the world how I really feel and like what's really going on in my mind and, and, and how frustrated and disgusted I am with like a lot of the people a part of the human race, like mm-hmm. my life would be at risk. You know what I mean? Even if I displayed a quarter of what I'm actually feeling. And so um, that's sort of what that piece is dedicated to and how I got to that. When it comes to Black Cloud 2, I was really in search of this spirit in a sense. Um, like I am a believer in God, but I, when I was creating this piece, I was really missing uh, my father's mother. Um, who'd passed, she passed in 2012, if I remember correctly. But I was really mourning her in this time. And it was like a very random, you know, if you ever mourn someone, like it just gets smaller. It doesn't ever go away. And sometimes it like hits you like a wave. I do have sort of a tumultuous relationship with my mother. Um, And so I usually have access to those maternal figures like my grandmother, her mother, my mother's mother. But I specifically was trying to create this sort of spiritual covering or like a blanket or like a like an overcast in a sense, mm. um, like something um, was watching over you and covering you. And I made this, so I have a canopy bed and like uh, my home is like my safe space. I use it as a studio and I make work wherever I feel like making my work. Um, and so I, I constructed this piece in my bed, oh, wow. in my idea of what a safe space is, even though there is still a lot of, it's not likely that I'm actually safe here, which is, has been proven, you know, multiple yeah. times. And so I, you know, used this safe space that I created for myself to also create this, this covering for myself and this sort of this black cloud, uh, which a lot of people associate to like bad, you know, bad luck and like darkness is coming and, and all of these things. And I really wanted to use this as a, that as a time to create this really beautiful thing. But using this Marley hair, um, while it is a synthetic hair, um, it is, you know, created to be like a simulation of like a 4C, like a stretched 4C hair. And so I also wanted to like start this conversation of like, this is the thing that literally sits on my head. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And like mm-hmm. protects me, you know what I mean? And I see it as a thing of beauty and, a lot of times that the rest of the world doesn't 
like now they are. And I feel like there's sometimes there's like these when it comes to other cultures, there's like this fascination in a sense to it, Mm. you know, of it and sort of like this fetishization of it. But for me, like I genuinely love it. I have Mm. to genuinely love it because it is a part of my body and it's something that grew from me um, and that I will never be able to get rid of. Even if I chemically change it, you know what I mean? What's growing from my head is still that. And for a lot of Black people, you know, this 4C hair is this bad thing or has Mm. been this bad thing once before in their lives. And so I wanted to combine all of those things in a sense. And um, that's sort of where Black Cloud came from. And it also was Black Cloud, the very first version of it um, was like the start of me exploring these suspended pieces that are this object of safety for me or um, this thing that was very similar to like mobiles. I'm thinking about mobiles and like the things that cover our beds and or like chandeliers, these these really valuable objects that are usually made from like crystals or like, Mm -hmm. you know, for babies specifically, these things that are really calming. And I wanted to get out of I probably will always have rage within me, you know, Mm. Um, but I recognized how damaging it was for me and my mental health and like um, having that sort of that feeling at a forefront. And so I started to try to push myself mentally out of that phase and into this phase of creating something that does make me happy, does bring me joy and peace. That's sort of where these suspended, these idea of these suspended sculptures and structures um, came from. Um, And that's sort of currently where I am in my practice. When you're sitting there talking, I was like, wow, I already loved your work. And the way they're explaining it is making me love it even more. And adding another element, like I'm thinking about these three pieces in this tiny enclosed room. And what's really interesting is I'm like, wow, the like you're talking about inside the room, you've got rage and you've got grief. And these are two things like I love how you're talking about how even how it's received, people are like, oh, that doesn't remind me of rage. It's a, it's a something that we are so, I think, culturally are so scared to show rage and we're so scared to show grief and we're scared to see it. And yet we have opinions of what it should look like and what it should mean. And I'm mm-hmm. thinking about how you've created pieces that are like really diving into both grief and rage. And then you have a third piece, which is the only piece that's not in, encased in the room, but facing outwards that's mm-hmm. about map making and mark making and yep. cartography and kind of showing a pathway out. And I think it just adds so much another level of brilliance to your work where you're engaging these deep Thanks. things and then creating a, another piece that's facing outward, kind of showing a pathway through this. Thank you. Oh, I'm glad. Like, it's always really exciting when like people understand the work because mm-hmm. uh, it's like you're understanding a part of me, which is exciting. <laughs> From what you were just talking about, Deja, I was curious, in your own personal relationship with your hair, do you ever express your rage through that? You like, know, is that, is that a place of expression? I honestly for that? feel, I, I see like my existence and my body as a form of like resistance. You know what I mean? Like my, my general existence is a form of resistance. And I, I would say yes, is, is like the short mm-hmm. answer. Um, but like there are times I, I think that I'm, I'm so happy and like happy to be 
and grateful is the best word to use. Grateful to be sort of a part of like the black community and the ability to be able to literally change my hair. Like even my friends who are also like black women, they're like, Deja, you change your hair like <laughs> all of the time. And it's and and it's because my mood does change so mm-hmm. often. I'm like, no, I want red today. This is what I'm feeling. And uh, specifically, like that's why the Rage series was this like really deep, burgundy color because that's usually what I would choose to use if I wanted to like stand out or you know be bold or you know be um yeah like deeper in in the the way that I display you know my body and my hair um but also like specifically I'm going into this let your hair down series um of suspended pieces Mm. and you know a lot of them are really long you know really long braids and hair and I feel like like the bigger the hair the more rebellious and the longer the hair like the longer Mm. the braids the more rebellious also just because like (laughs) when you have a really big afro like it takes up space you know Mm. what I mean like there's multiple times where I've been tapped on the shoulder, like your hair's in the way. And I'm like, well, I don't, you know, (laughs) or like I have, I've like smacked people, you know, like smacked like my significant others with like, you know, my hair, like, I'm like just Mm. pulling it over to the side or something. They're like, okay. Like, oh, well. (laughs) So I, you know, I still, I, I say that to connect it back to the let your hair down series, because, you know, I'm creating these pieces that are spinning, um, and while they look really magical, like, but if you get really close to them, like you can get harmed. Like it's, it's a mm. form of like a force field in a way. Um, mm. And so in long terms, how I would explain how I use uh, my hair um, to express my rage or, or other feelings. Yeah. Oh, that's really powerful. Yeah. Well, and, and another thing while you're talking was I was thinking about just the idea of safety. Elle had mentioned when we had talked about hair, like this idea of the ponytail being like, something i don't know l do you want yeah, to explain I, when that we had really conversation quick? About hair, so i've done a couple performance pieces and stuff about my own hair and i kind of like went through this so i was raised within a religious home and so there was a lot of like impetus especially within christianity in the environment that i was in and being a white uh girl about how i wore my hair and then also so i started to study like reading through the bible of like what does it say about hair and there's so much about how you do your hair that's related to ownership particularly by men and so much of Mm -hmm. my hair has been defined by male desire and ownership and et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So I won't go into all that, but I was like deconstructing all of these things and trying to figure out like, what do I even think about my hair? What do I like? I don't even know. Cause I spent my whole life trying to do it, you know, dyeing it darker, different colors or blonde. And yeah. And that's just like my own personal journey. And then I got to this one point where I was like, well, if I could do anything, what would I do? And I was like, Oh, I think I would just put it in a ponytail. And then Mm. I read this whole research study that talked about how they um, in in the study, they interviewed serial rapist and for stranger rape, not just like date rape, but stranger rape. And the one thing they were trying to figure out is like, what are you targeting? And the main thing Mm -hmm. that came up over and over and over is we look for women with ponytails because we can grab her, pull her and control her more. And I thought, well, I can't Mm -hmm. ever wear my hair in a ponytail again. So that's that's what Connor's referencing. So I don't know if you had a question attached to that, but. Yeah, well, so I was bringing it up because I was thinking about you were saying that you want to have loud and long hair as like a form of resistance. Mm. And then at the same time, like this idea of safety starts to be like potentially you you maybe are putting yourself at risk. But mm-hmm. I think it was just making me think that that's just resistance in general. Like if yeah. you're ever going to be in like a state of resistance or like a posture of resistance, you're like 
there's going to be a, a preparation of you're pushing back against something that is normally going to harm you or could potentially harm you. Yeah. And so I was just curious if how you like think about safety in that kind of context. You know, too. I, I never really thought about it in that sense is what I'm going to say for now, because I do, I, I know that actual, I know exactly the research that you're talking about. Cause mm. I remember like it being shared, like mm. you need to know about this yeah. <laughs> in oh, my no. group Gosh. chats and stuff. Yeah. And I, use my body as a form of resistance you know what I mean and like I am I am tired of having to filter myself in some way just to be able to express myself you know what I mean like I have to there's all these like guidelines and like there's no reason why I should have to worry about a rapist pulling Mm -hmm. my hair you know what I mean and uh, you know, snatching me along and harassing me in, in whatever way that they choose to. And so that's sort of my response to that is that like, it shouldn't even be a thing that we should be worried about, you know, mm. and that's the, that's the really frustrating thing. Yeah. No, I, yeah um, it reminds sense. me of this time when I was uh, actually hearing an artist speak at Cranbrook and She's this amazing uh, Latina artist and she was working in steel and talking about it. And someone raised their hand and was like asking about this idea of, can you really break down? I can't remember the exact quote, but it's something like, can you, what's the quote? Something like about them. Can you construct a new house using the master's tools? I don't remember what that quote is. Um, yeah. You know what I'm talking about? You can't, you can't deconstruct a house using the master's tools. Yeah. Yeah. Some, well, yeah. Audrey Lord. Yep. Yeah. And uh, she responded and just said, what master? Mm-hmm. She's like, I don't know what you're talking yeah. about. I don't have a master. And it yeah. was so brilliant because it's kind of harkening back to what we we're talking about earlier. And it just reminded me when you said that, where you're like, I shouldn't have to worry about, I'm, you know, this. And it's that, that tension of the reality that it is something that happens and that we are afraid of and that we worry about. But also living in resistance is saying, what master are you talking it's about? It's always going to be a risk. Right. Yeah. But there's a cost. There's a cost. Yeah. And I, I feel very grateful to the resistance that you're providing through your work. And I'm thinking of, you know, the, the sad part is you didn't actually get to see your work and people interacting with it, but I feel, I I feel grateful (laughs) because the amount of, um, how much resistance that you were, uh, displaying and all the conversations and the things that happened around it was so meaningful and so impactful. Like to me, this is the point of art. This is what art does. Um, Mm -hmm. but I'm also aware that like, there's a cost, like, throughout this conversation, there's a cost for you representing and creating meaning and, you know, the expectations and the critiques and creating resistance. And so uh, I'm just aware of that. And if you want to speak to that, I don't want to be like, how do you take care of yourself? But I am just want to say, and you're welcome to talk about that. But I just want to acknowledge that like, there's a huge cost. And, you know, we talk a lot, the whole point of this podcast and our work is about interloping, being in places you don't belong. And I have like mm-hmm. a soft spot for artists and people that do this because we kind of valorize them and think, oh, they're amazing and they're brave and they're changing culture. But for me, it's more of like, hey, we're destroying the very people we're looking to for leadership and just mm-hmm. kind of wanting to call that out of like, there's a huge yeah. cost to what you're doing. Yeah. You know, I have recognized it, you know, and like, especially your career in a sense is on the line. Your life is on the line. Like your livelihood is on the line, you know, when you are being your genuine and full self. Um, But like, I feel like my ancestors and the people who came before me, you know, have worked so hard to sort of get us here. And I feel like it would be a shame for me 
to continue to mask and not to take Mm. advantage of, you know, the privileges that I have and the platform that I have. And so I do, I totally understand the risk. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? I totally understand that, like, I could make the wrong person mad one day, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, just by being myself, just by existing. And so it's so much more complicated to, it's so much more work to have to worry about like the rest of the world and like how they're thinking and how they're receiving me and all of those things. And I feel like I shouldn't have to take that on. You know, I need to just be, be my genuine self and continue to fight for the people, you know what I mean, that I I need to fight for. And like, if that means that, you know, it is risking, you know, my career or my livelihood, then, then it'll just be another example. So I also wanted to add in um, just for visibility um, because I, you know, I know that there are other people out there and I always, I don't always, you know, see it and like people don't always share these things. Um, But I I wanted to add that um, within my experience, I am also like a guardian of my younger brother, which I'm really grateful to, you know, have him in such close proximity with me. Um, But like, I wanted to add that to the sort of the challenges or the um, obstacles and things that we have to sort of navigate. Um, And I think that is really valuable um, to once again, make that visible and make it heard (laughs) Um, because you don't, I I know there are other siblings out there that are caretakers of their siblings and other people in their families. um, And I think it's really needed to, you know, be known. you know, that it is something that some people have to navigate. <laughs> Not to harp back on this, uh, but I feel like I, I'm just even more impressed because I mean, I so I am a I am a legal guardian of my niece, uh, my sister's daughter. And so I went to Cranbrook with a kid. Mm-hmm. And that was like yeah. a whole level for me on top of it of like, well, OK, we're going to have a, meet- a meeting at midnight and you just have to do it because you're in grad school. But you're also mm-hmm. navigating raising a child. And that's not. Mm-hmm a thing that is necessarily on people's radars uh, while you're doing yeah. all this amazing work. So it's, it's, it's definitely one of those things where it's a challenge. It's a, like you, you're trying to navigate, you know, when the times, like, is there ever a time to be selfish when you are raising somebody and you are bringing someone up and like um, being consistent in, you know, making them feel seen and making mm-hmm. them feel heard and, you know, all of those things. And so, um, yeah, I that makes me so happy to hear that you also are a, a guardian of your niece. Because uh, like it's like you hear it sometimes, like maybe in a movie or something <laughs> um, or like a TV show. Uh, but like it's not always really visible. And so, um, yeah, I'm yeah. First of all, we've been talking for about an hour and I feel so grateful. I could talk to you for a long time because I, I there's certain people when you see their artwork, you know, not only this art great, but they've got something to say. And I've just, you've just affirmed that times a million. I've loved hearing you talk, talk about your work and talk about how you think, but we want to, we're going to link your, the archive of your show and the show notes, as well as your website. But I'd love to just ask you what's next for you or what, what can we look forward to with you and, and your work? Um, what's next for me? 
Um, that is, you know, sort of a, an anxiety provoking question for me <laughs> currently, um, seeing as how I'm about to graduate. But uh, like I said, the Let Your Hair Down series is something that I'm starting to really delve deep into. And mm. like, of course, we have the big show at Cranbrook um, in, I want to, in April. April okay. is the month. <laughs> um, so we'll have that. And I am just looking to, uh, after school, I, of course, will be, you know, having my art practice, um, mm-hmm. but I am looking towards becoming an educator um, and, you know, staying connected, whether it be <laughs> within collegiate institutions or, you know, high school level. Um, so I am really interested in, you know, reconnecting with the community and creating opportunities for connection and shared conversation. Um, so that's what's current. Um, I'm taking it day by day and letting all of the other people know that it is okay to take it day by day Yeah, and to, you know, like continue to live in the moment and continue to just continue to move in intent with intention um, mm-hmm. is sort of how I am going to be taking on my practice and taking on like the rest of my life and career so yeah, those are the things. I'm excited to keep up with what you do. And also like, I, I remember like you after grad school, it's a huge thing. Like even that you're showing while you're in grad school, most grad students don't do that because it's so much work. So even if yeah. you take a break and we don't see anything for you for a little bit, uh, I'm excited to see what you do and what, what comes next yes. as it's kind of being developed. So I encourage everyone listening to this. We'll have Deja's information, in the show notes, follow her on Instagram, check out her website so you can keep up with what, what she's going to be doing. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Thank Thank you, Deja. Thank you so much. Let us know what you think and join the conversation at interloperinterloper.com slash podcast, where you can leave us a comment, ask a question, or tell us what we missed or need to go deeper with. Interloper's vision is putting money into the hands of artists, saying the things we aren't supposed to say. If you'd like to support artists or this podcast, go to interloperinterloper.com slash funders to find out ways you can help increase creativity and conversation. Finally, we release podcasts, new exhibition series, and more on the 29th of each month. The 29th of each month. The 29th of each month. So set your calendars and follow us on Instagram at interloper underscore unlicensed to find out what's next. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Interloper is a project of the Milkshake Club, which is powered by Shenpike. This episode was produced, edited, and recorded by Connor Walden and Tiffany Danielle Elliott. The song you heard on the podcast today is Lofi en la Fila de la Totiria by Palma Sol.